This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Good morning. I come with uh, the greetings from my fellow lowlanders in Franklin, Tennessee. It's my favorite description of us who live in Middle Tennessee when I come back here. Oh, there's a lowlander. Um, it, it's funny to hear uh, Mike recount uh, that year. I guess you call that a pastoral uh, church planning residency. Uh, I just distinctly remember uh, Craig leaving a year before he was supposed to leave and Bill looking around the room going, well, what, are we, what do we got you here for? Let's just give you some work. Uh, and I just took over Craig's responsibilities, but it was a joy uh, to be with you guys. Uh, whenever we, our family comes back here, uh, it feels like a family reunion to us. Uh, the moment we walk in those doors, we see so many familiar faces um, and it's a joy. Uh, it feels like we haven't even left, uh, even though it's been five years. And uh, it's a joy for us to be with you guys. Uh, actually, our, our youngest son was all fired up on the way over, and, and we didn't understand why, because he is five. He didn't remember you. Um, and uh, we were like, why are you so excited? He goes, because this is the place that I was born. And uh, so, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's attached to you. Um, so it's a joy. So it's such a joy to see you guys. Um, one of the other joys that I have from the perspective of only periodically stopping in is not just seeing the familiar faces, but it's also a joy to see all the unfamiliar ones. And so when I look around and I don't recognize you, it means you've probably come to be a part of this church over the last five years uh, since we left. And uh, it's such a joy for me. Uh, this church sacrificed so much. Uh, in order that we would plant a healthy church in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, you sent some of your uh, best people with us. And um, it's a joy for me to come back and to see this room filled with faces I've never seen before, uh, knowing that the Lord has uh, greatly rewarded your sacrifice in, in planting a church in faith. And uh, it gives us faith for the future just to think about the future sacrifices we have to make, knowing uh, this train hasn't stopped going in Knoxville, and by God's grace, it won't stop moving in Franklin. And so it's a real joy to be with you this, this morning. Thanks, guys, for letting me come. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. This morning we'll be in verses 18 through 30. I sent Bill Kittrell a list of different sermon texts, topics. He chose the one on suffering. I don't know if that speaks more about him or me. Um, I constantly think that Bill likes to set me up to look bad, to make himself look better. So I don't put that past him. Yeah, exactly. But the truth is, um, is that not a single one of us in this room will escape this lifetime without some form of suffering. In fact, nobody in this room will escape this lifetime without various forms of suffering. And when suffering hits us, it, it sends shockwaves through our system. It disorients us. Um, sometimes we can lose our bearings, how we're supposed to feel, how we're supposed to respond in those moments. And that's why it's so important for us as, as a church, for us as churches, to, to continue teaching periodically regularly on suffering, because the Bible has much to say about it. 
The reason why is we want to know that when our number is going to be called, and it will be, that we're going to be prepared to suffer well, that we're going to be prepared to be biblically informed in how we are to respond when our system is in shock as well. And so this morning, all we're going to do is scratch the surface on the topic of suffering, but I believe that the Lord, uh, by his spirit, through his word, um, has something to say for us and how we suffer in, in suffering in a healthy fashion. So let's start by reading God's word, Romans 8. We'll go 18 to 30, and this is God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Romans 8 is a very popular text, particularly the last few verses. And at first glance, when you look at Romans 8, the way that this passage starts in verse 18, it, it seems that this would be an unlikely place for Paul to teach on suffering. He spent the first half of chapter 8 describing the wonderful benefits that we as Christians have by belonging to God's family he reminds the readers that the Christian experience life in the Holy Spirit and that Christians have a future inheritance that is sure to come. Paul calls us heirs with God, co-heirs with Christ. In this first half of chapter 8, it's, it's like Paul is soaring through the clouds, just flying high, describing all the wonderful experiences that we as Christians have through faith in Christ. And Paul could have kept soaring, describing the infinite grace of God that we have, but he knows the reality and he's keenly aware of his readers and the experience that they have, that even though our heavenly destiny is sure, there's an earthly existence that we all live in, in this broken, 
world. And while we have much to hope for as Christians, and we do, we are still subjected to the pain that comes with being fallen creatures in a fallen world. And our text this morning is very clear. It presents a world that is filled with pain and misery. And this pain and misery is not merely confined to human beings. We see that all of creation is subjected to this brokenness. But we also see in this text, not only a a painful broken world, but we see a sovereign God who hovers over all of it. He stands over all and he redeems all in order to make much of himself. Therefore, we can look into it and I can give you the the end before we even get there. But a life of suffering for the Christian does not stand outside of the scope of God's plan, but rather suffering for the Christian is a primary ingredient that God uses in his own providence to accomplish his work in us. In fact, you could say that suffering is a vital part of the Christian experience. But if this is actually true, we're going to need help with this, right? I mean, who in their right mind signs up for Jesus if they know following Jesus means that pain and suffering follows? I mean, who in their right mind signs up for this kind of misery? I know I'm speaking to a room full of UT fans, UT football fans. That was a low, I know. I know. Hang in there. You got a good coach coming. I promise. In all all seriousness, though, Paul knows his readers need help. They need help. You and I need help. How does God fit into the equation of your suffering and my suffering? What what is God doing? Is he actually there? Is, Is he actually doing something in this? Or am I left to my own devices in order to deal with it. And our text this morning presents a God who is not only present in our suffering, but he also gives us hope in our suffering and he provides us help in our suffering. And so if you are here this morning and you are suffering, I pray that God ministers his grace, his mercy, and his sovereign goodness to you through his word. So that's where we're going. We're going to take three small steps to get there. Step number one, our feudal state, verses 19 to 23a. Paul wants to frame suffering for the believer within the grand scope of of his design before addressing the suffering in the life of, of a Christian or even human beings. Paul begins by describing creation itself. Paul isn't talking about human beings here in verses 19 to 22. Instead, he is referring to the rest of God's creation, animals, oceans, plants, rocks, trees, and so on. However, even though he isn't talking about humanity here, Paul Paul speaks of them in in, in these personal ways. He, He personifies inanimate creation. He describes this this part of creation that can't speak, and he says that they are eagerly longing in hopes of being set free from the bondage that they too 
are experiencing. Why does he describe objects this way? Look at verse 20. He says that all of creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Now this phrase, him who subjected it, this is, this is a reference to God in the creation account when he created all things, the heavens, the earth, the dry land, the oceans, the suns. There's only one sun. Uh, the moons, the plants, the trees, the birds, everything. It's a reference back to creation. And then to top it off, he creates man and woman in his own image. He instructs them to obey his commands which includes overseeing, shepherding, stewarding all of God's creation. And while it was Adam and Eve alone who were accountable to God for these commands, we see that when they fail to obey those commands, judgment falls upon not only them, but all of creation. We find it as, as God pronounces judgment to the serpent, he references a curse that's greater than the one of the livestock and the, the livestock and the beasts of the field. So we see that animals are now cursed. When he's pronouncing a judgment upon Adam, God mentions the curse that he's put on the ground. So we see now that the ground is cursed. And this is what Paul means when he says that all of creation was subjected to futility on that day when Adam and Eve sinned where the ground once just naturally bore fruit, Adam was going to have to work his tail off to make it yield something. Where all the animals lined up and Adam was able to just name them off and send them on their way, had a nice little relationship with the animals, Adam would not have the same relationship with the lions and tigers at this point. It changes. We see that the perfect climate that Adam and Eve experienced in Eden, we know that the climate would not obey in the same way and future generations would be subjected to even fiercer weather conditions. We see all of creation subjected to futility. And this is why Paul describes these inanimate objects as groaning, looking forward, to this day when, when the children of God receive their full inheritance. And after describing the broken nature of the world and its longing to be free, Paul then moves over to us. He begins to describe humanity. Verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first, boot, first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly. Like the rest of creation, Paul says that Christians also groan. Christians long for this day when God's saving work in us will be complete and suffering will be no more. But the question remains, and many people ask this question, if, if we've received this salvation, we've received redemption, We've received, received the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. Why is it that we would groan and long in the same way that the rest of unredeemed creation do? We have the gospel. We have Jesus. Why do we groan? We know, you know, because this is a 
gospel-declaring, gospel-loving, Jesus-loving church that Christ died for our sins to reconcile us to God. And we know that through faith in Christ, you and I are made right in his eyes, sins forgiven, sins atoned for, peace with God we now experience, and we receive salvation. And it's secure, and it's sure. And we receive it, we receive the gift of the Spirit, and dwells the life of every single believer. And we know that this salvation of Christ is rock solid. The Lord keeps us, the Lord holds us, and we have that. But God coming to dwell with his people through the Holy Spirit, we, we know it's a sign that, that we are secure, right? We, we, we teach that. This church teaches that. He who began a good work in us will surely complete it. The Spirit's present in us is, is a sign that, that what God has begun, he will surely do. But the day of Christ Jesus has not yet come. Today's not the day, at least not yet. And this is why Paul describes it only as the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit provides assurance for us in our salvation, while at the same time providing us assurance that it will be completed. But until that day, even though our salvation is secure, suffering is a reality for us as Christians. There are many pastors and authors who would say otherwise, they would teach you that God's will is that Christians would live and experience a life that's free from pain and hardship. They would teach that if you're experiencing trials and hardship in your life, it's either a result of your sin or it's a result of your lack of faith. If you hear someone hinting at that, run for the hills. You may already live in the hills, run for the lowlands. We don't teach that. But the Bible consistently portrays Christians struggling in the midst of a fallen world. I mean, just think about God's word. We, we have all of these promise, promises, not the ones we like, but promises that are sure to play out in the life of a Christian. That we will be hated for the name of Christ, Matthew 10. Be delivered over to tribulation and killed. Matthew 24, 9. Be betrayed even by parents and brothers. Luke 21. Be persecuted. Matthew 23. Suffer for the sake of Christ. Philippians 1. Be considered sheep to be slaughtered. Romans 8. Imprisoned. Flogged. Beaten. Mistreated. Maligned. Have property seized. Insulted. Poor. Hungry. Weeping. Ostracized suffer unjustly, afflicted. This is the description of the Christian life in a fallen world. This book tells us that anything other than teaching that is simply wishful thinking. Sin has set off a cataclysmic chain of events for all of creation. All of it. The fall has negatively affected everything in our world, it's the reason we experience earthquakes, spider bites, tsunamis, poison ivy, diseases, you fill in the blanks. And this is the feudal state that every Christian finds himself or herself in. It's why we experience disease. It's why we are persecuted. It's why we are stricken. It's why we become depressed. It's why we are afflicted. 
we shouldn't be dumbfounded by the presence of suffering in the life of a Christian in this world. Instead, you and I should be dumbfounded when there is an absence of suffering. And this is why we as Christians groan inwardly. It's why we long for all of this suffering to end. Indeed, we will suffer in this world. This is what Paul wants to make sure his readers understand, but he doesn't stop there. If he stops there, there's not much hope. If he stops there, there's the sense in which, what are we even doing? We're just going to experience pain. But Paul offers up two reasons that we as Christians can be optimistic even when we suffer in this world. First point is reason, the second point is reason number one, which is our future hope. As we said, suffering is a harsh reality in a fallen world for Christians. I think we as Christians need to be real careful when we're interacting with those who are suffering. We need to be real careful that we don't seek to minimize their suffering. We need to be careful that we don't seek to explain away someone's suffering. We need to find other ways to encourage Christians than trying to tell them that their suffering is not real. That's not going to provide relief for anyone if we try to do that. It's actually quite offensive if you're suffering and someone tells you you're not. And the truth is, is the, the greatest hope that you and I can experience when suffering is to be told that there's a day coming when you're not going to suffer anymore. That's what I want to hear. When I'm suffering, I just want to hear, you're not going to suffer forever. That encourages me. It doesn't encourage me to hear that my suffering is not real. It encourages me to hear that my suffering is not forever. And that hope and that thought that, that there's a day coming when this will end is a beautiful thing. It means that even though yesterday was marked by pain, today's marked by pain, tomorrow's probably going to be marked by pain, the next five years might be marked by pain, but hey, this is, this is momentary. There's a day coming when this thing's going to end. And this is exactly how Paul wants to encourage his readers. This is how he wants to encourage those who are suffering that are receiving this letter. He wants to provide them hope that their suffering is only temporary. And he provides them perspective. Look at verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, suffering is harsh today, but God assures us that it pales in comparison to the glory that you and I are about to receive. This life is but a vapor. Your suffering feels like forever, but it's not when you look at it over the scope of eternity. And when you consider eternity and the glorious hope that you and I are about to inherit, that can give us hope to suffer well today. Paul keeps speaking to this future hope, verses 24 and 25. What Paul is saying here is that We've received great gifts through our faith in Christ. We can look around and see we've got salvation. We have redemption. We have forgiveness of sins. We've received the gift of the Spirit. We've received the gift of fellowship with other believers. We've received the gift of the Spirit. I said that one twice. I meant to say the church the second time. And Paul is saying, 
Yes, we've received all these wonderful gifts, but if we only look at what we've received, we're losing sight of where our true hope lies. That this isn't enough for us to to suffer well in this lifetime. Paul wants the church to see and to look with eyes of faith to see what God has in store for them, not just in this lifetime, but in the lifetime to come. That the Christian sufferer has hope for their future because they know what lies in their future. And Paul, I didn't like this part of the passage. I don't know about you. But Paul says that not only is the Christian sufferer to have hope for the future, but they are to, in their present circumstance, patiently wait for it. The word I didn't like there was patiently wait for it. That's verse 25. And unfortunately for me and Bill, because I know Bill, he whines like me when he's not doing well, And the patience that Paul is describing here, unfortunately, is not just a reluctant acceptance of our current circumstance. It's not a a reluctance just kind of, oh, well, this is the way it is. But the kind of patience that Paul is describing here is a positive endurance. It's a having faith in the midst of suffering kind of patience. This is the type of patience in which marks a soldier at battle in the throes of warfare while sleep deprived and bombarded by enemy fire who keeps pressing into battle. No matter how difficult the circumstances, no matter how many of his comrades have fallen, he keeps pressing forward. This is the kind of patient endurance that he's describing. I don't like that. I want to suffer. I want to whine. I want to complain. I want Mary Beth to help. Actually, I just want her to listen. I'm not looking for help. I just want her to listen to my whining. And it doesn't seem fair. It's fair. But it doesn't seem, it seems difficult to patiently endure in the midst of suffering. And I even wondered, even as I was looking through this, like, is that required for us as Christians? Do we have to suffer patiently? Listen to what John Piper says about the Christian who is impatient. So this is the opposite of patience. Piper says it this way. He says, impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. The opposite of impatience is not a glib denial of loss. It's a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience, to wait in his place and to go at his pace. Our suffering Our patience in the midst of our suffering as Christians, it's an expression of our faith. It's telling those who are around us that we have a hope that is beyond us. 
It's an expression of our unwavering belief that truly our present sufferings pale in comparison to the future hope of glory, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Our patience is a sign that our hope is truly in the Lord, regardless of our present hardship. Yes, we suffer, but we can patiently, faithfully endure with hope, knowing that a day is coming. God has promised us that that day is surely coming when it will end. Finally, Paul, better yet, God, gives us a second reason for optimism in the face of suffering, our present help. Verses 26 to 30. So we've seen that in suffering, it's a reality in the life of the Christian, that in our suffering we have hope because we have future glory that awaits us. But if we're being honest here, or if I'm being honest here, we can all think, hey, the future sounds great, God, but how about a little something-something today? I'd like something for this pain relief today. Yeah, I'm excited, I'm hoping, I'm waiting, but I'd really like some help. I'd like my suffering alleviated somewhat. And I love that in addition to the future hope that God provides, God provides a help in our present time of suffering. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What does God do? What does God give us in the midst of our suffering? He gives us himself. He gives us his presence. He helps us. He intercedes for us. How's that for pain relief? Right? You get God. And this text lines up beautifully with Psalm 46.1, that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. When we're suffering, we have the Spirit, and the Spirit cares for us. The Spirit cares for me in a way that Mary Beth cannot when I am weak. The Spirit is a comforter and a helper. Remember the intelligible, unintelligible, inward groaning that we described earlier that Christians have when we're suffering. It's just this inward groaning. We've got it. Creation's got it. We're all moaning, groaning, complaining. Paul says that the Spirit takes those unspeakable groans, whines, and prayers and presents them to God the Father with clarity. In other words, the Spirit takes our whining, our pleading, our begging, and he takes them to his heavenly Father and presents them as this beautiful, wonderful prayer request. And the good news this morning is that God 
always answers those requests of the Spirit in the affirmative. Because the Spirit always prays in accordance with God's will. And because God is working through us, the Spirit working through us, the result of that truth is verse 28, the verse we so love that God is working all things for our good. We have that assurance. And it's reassuring for me, and I, and I pray it is for you, to think that I'm not alone in my suffering. There are times when you're suffering, when I'm suffering, that people try to understand, but they don't really know. Those times when you're, just, you're battling with darkness, you're fighting depression, you try to tell people about it, but they can't really understand. But the Spirit knows he knows you. He knows where you're weak. He knows how you're struggling. He knows exactly why you feel the way you feel. And he's interceding for you. He's praying for you. That's encouraging. It means our desperate cries during our most painful and vulnerable moments become like beautiful, eloquent prayers when God the Spirit presents them to the Father. It's both super cool and super encouraging. And as if that wasn't enough, the Spirit does even more. He is at work in the midst of it all, not just doing something up in the heavenly realm, but He's doing something in the earthly realm in us to turn our suffering somehow, some way, for our good. It means that when you and I are suffering, it's not a setback. It's not a, a blip on the radar of our Christian life. In fact, it's something that God is using to grow us and to make us more like Jesus Christ. It means that when we suffer, it is a reminder, Christian, that we have been redeemed. This is what Paul's saying. It's a reminder that we've been redeemed, that God is continuing to redeem us, and that God ultimately will one day finally and fully redeem us. In an article from last summer in which she reflected on 50 years of suffering as a quadriplegic, Johnny Erickson Tata wrote, The core of God's plan is to rescue me from sin and self and to keep rescuing me. I am in constant need of saving. My displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down, back down the road to Calvary where I die to the sins Jesus died for. Sure, I have a long way to go before I am who God destined me to be in glory, but thankfully, my paralysis keeps pushing me up to strive to reach for that heavenly prize. Who talks like that after 50 years of suffering as a quadriplegic? I'll tell you who suffers like that. It's somebody who has a biblical view of God's ultimate purpose in her suffering. That's who. And that's who I want to be. And that's who I think we as Christians should all desire to be, that God would grant us, all of us, this divine perspective.
This text provides us with a framework for why there is suffering. Sin has infested everything. Broken humanity living in a fallen world leads to pronounced suffering for all mankind, including Christians. Which means in a room this size, I have no doubt in my mind that there are many here this morning who are suffering in various ways. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one this morning. Maybe you're suffering in a dead-end job. Maybe one of your parents is in the last stages of a tough battle with a tough disease. Maybe you're personally battling cancer. Maybe you're struggling right now in a tough marriage. Or maybe you're wrestling and battling with depression and darkness. And your struggle is real. And we're not minimizing that struggle this morning. God does not minimize your struggling. But I think God also wants to remind you and he wants to encourage you this morning. He wants to remind you that he draws near to you in your suffering. He wants to remind you that God the Spirit is with you at all times, including in your darkest and lowest, lowliest hour, that the Spirit is comforting you in ways that you can't even see. 2 Corinthians 1.6 says, If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. Your suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure with you, but rather a clear sign that God is at work in you. He's at work to use this season of suffering for your good. He's using your current trial that you're experiencing this morning to make you more like Jesus. God's not wasting one ounce of your suffering this morning. This means that you who are suffering, if you're suffering this morning, it means that you know something of the Savior that those of us who are not suffering don't know. It means you're experiencing the goodness, the mercy, and the grace of Jesus in a way that those who have not suffered or who are not suffering cannot fathom. You know something of the love, the compassion, the patience, and the steadfast love of God more deeply than those who have not or who are not suffering. And I know that should comfort you this morning, and it should, but your greatest hope lies in the fact that God has assured you that your suffering will not go on forever. That there is a day coming when your faith will be made sight. I've never heard that song we sang this morning. We will see, we will know. it's, It's remarkable to think that day is coming for you. You're going to be face to face with Jesus and you're not going to feel an ounce of pain. It's comforting to know that Christ isn't just present in your suffering, but that at Calvary, Jesus entered into unspeakable suffering. That Jesus entered into the suffering and the brokenness of this world. That he went to Calvary, bore the weight, the guilt, the shame, 
being turned away by his heavenly father. Jesus experienced the ultimate suffering in order that you and I would never have to. And it's in the midst of our suffering, when we compare our suffering to the suffering of Christ, and we consider all that God is doing for us as Christians who have faith in Christ, in the midst of our suffering, that we can count our sufferings as light and momentary in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So church, don't lose heart this morning. Don't lose heart. You have hope. Yes, groan. Groan inwardly. Wait patiently. Hold fast to Jesus and look forward to your future expectantly because God is accomplishing much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love, mercy, patience, goodness. I thank you that you don't get frustrated with us when we groan. You don't become angry with us when we complain. You don't become impatient with us when we don't understand that God, you assist us and dwell us by your Holy Spirit, that you comfort us, that you remind us the, of the wonderful things that you are accomplishing for us, the, that you're reminding us that, that the suffering pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us and that this suffering will not prolong forever. God, we cling to those truths. And we ask this morning that you would seal them in our hearts so that when our number is called, that we would suffer well. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.